1: Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. Politics is how you get into government. Policy is what you do when you're there. But quite often, the two seem to be, quite frankly, irreconcilable. Someone who's seen a lot of both is Polly McKenzie, the chief executive of the Demos think tank. She was Nick Clegg's director of policy during the coalition government between 2010 and 2015. Yes, that brave experiment that was summarily rejected in favour of the strong and stable government that David Cameron promised us. Welcome to The Bunker, Polly. Uh, Hi there, thanks for having me. Polly's just written a series of papers setting out how we could do things differently and try and make politics and policy work together. First off, Polly, thank you for writing policy papers that are actually a pleasure to read.
0: Uh, Yeah, not enough footnotes, some people have said, but you know what, I think footnotes are overrated. I think the only person who's good at footnotes is Terry Pratchett. Uh, Because if they're not snarky, what's the point?
1: Well, I've edited hundreds of these things, literally hundreds, and I can Mm -hmm. tell you that to make them readable is a very rare thing. So congratulations on that. Thank you. There's a lot of policy that politicians actively try to avoid, and you call it the too difficult box. There's a bit of an overlap with what we sometimes call wicked problems, a phrase I really love, things that just seem impossible to fix. Social care is an obvious one but before we get going i wanted to brainstorm some of the others with you because there are loads of them i mean grammar schools come to mind and there's there's so many aren't there in different fields
0: yeah i mean first of all you've got drugs policy and you immediately hear everybody just getting back into their trenches and saying oh actually we must legalize all drugs or no you are putting children at peril if you even mention doing anything differently on the war on drugs and that completely closes down our ability to to actually do anything about anything. I think immigration often pushes people, again, back to their trenches to just throw bombs at one another instead of having deep thoughts. But there's also, I think you often get big policy problems out of out of change, the sort of slow creeping change that it's very easy to avoid until the policy problems are so big that it's expensive or complicated or difficult to deal with them. I think social care is one of those, actually, because we've just had this massive uh, ageing population. And it it creeps up on you. The pension system, the fact that, you know, people can now expect to have, you know, maybe 25 years in retirement. It's not how the pension system was set up. Nobody wants to destabilise that because we've kind of got used to it. The funding of the healthcare system, all driven by the ageing population. You've then got technological change, you've got shifts in global power. And policymakers, I think, just get really often very panicked or confused um, about trying to keep up with those changes. It's a bit like boiling a frog, isn't it? Though, as I understand it, in fact, you can't boil a frog in the uh, sort of conventional way that is talked about the proverbial way. But nevertheless, there's never a moment when it has to be done now. And so you just get to that point where it's so expensive and so late that you end up finding it impossible to do anything at all.
1: Yeah, it's so expensive, or it's too complex. You know, I know social media hate speeches. I suppose the one that jumps to mind there. There are kind of so many vested interests. How do you reconcile those? There's the kind of argument that people don't like change and they prefer to stick with the status quo, which is always the one I hear about. Grammar schools just not worth the effort of trying to reform.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, grammar schools are totally fascinating, aren't they? The, The way a certain group. Of people, including those who are, I think, actively harmed by the grammar school system, remain massive advocates of them, despite all of the evidence about about the kind of systemic effect. And that's because there are some people who win massively from grammar schools, and those people often, because they've won massively, get into positions of power. And because you then have them in local areas where people are, you know, whatever people move to Kent in order to get their kids into grammar schools, they're not then going to sort of feel politically kind to anybody who undermines the value of their house secured on the back of those that kind of grammar school education that's available to an education secretary even one who who doesn't think that grammar schools have any role it just doesn't feel worth the candle
1: yeah people really hate it when they respond to an incentive and then the the government kind of takes that incentive away, and you saw that with diesel cars and all those people who took advantage of tax breaks on diesel cars and diesel fuel when we thought that they were actually less harmful than petrol, and then we turned, and then got very angry when it was turned around. Well, but,
0: you, but you can understand that, right? Like, so, and one of the things that I have put into this kind of series of pamphlets is is actually to think about people's interests more, because it's very easy when you are a political thinker or campaigner to decide that you're right and that you are on the side of justice. And let's imagine that, that you are in fact in this, on the side of justice when you are arguing, for example, to abolish grammar schools or for higher taxes on uh, unearned wealth that older people have in their houses. You know, there is a kind of moral philosophy case that justice is in fact on the side of those people who want to implement these changes. Here's the problem. We live in a democracy, and if you want to do something that is counter to the interests of say the 65, 70 percent of people who are homeowners, you've got a problem on your hands and stamping your feet and saying, "But I'm right, you're wrong to care about your own interests it's, you know I mean makes you feel good, but it doesn't in fact secure any change
1: And there's a reflex that you write about very vividly, particularly around Brexit, which is the frustration of politicians and campaigners at people who disagree with them. I mean, one of the things that in retrospect helped to destroy the chances of a softer Brexit was that Leavers knew Remainers were saying things like, what is the point of democracy when we get these idiotic results? How can we trust these people? They've made this stupid decision. Because that reflex (laughs) is hugely damaging, isn't it? But it's so tempting to fall into.
0: We've seen with the debate on the, the Colston statue verdict lots of people have have been very, very angry that the people who destroyed that statue uh, have been found innocent by a jury, by the people, the people of Bristol who, you know, on the balance of the evidence and the legal arguments put to them said that this was not a crime for which these people should be punished. And, you know, I've seen kind of commentary around that, but lots of people are very, very angry. They're saying that this is, this is a sort of an, a, an aberration. And there are lots of the same people who argued for for example brexit or sometimes argue for the death penalty whatever it might be on the basis of the will of the people and the problem is what they often mean when they want the will of the people is what they the, the will of the people like them but i think that we are all very often subject to those instincts and we use the word democracy to mean people like me getting what we want and and that's actually a kind of an overstatement of what democracy offers democracy is about a shared decision about the way we want to be governed. It's not about getting what you want. And if you believe in democracy, and, you know, some people don't believe in democracy, and that's absolutely their right. I do. But that means that you have to accept that all citizens, including the stupid ones and the selfish ones and uh, the confused ones, have an equal share and voice and vote, as well as the people who agree with you. And that's uncomfortable because we all like to believe that we're right and we all are kind of have access to all of our own views of justice and reasoning and insight and our own bubbles and I don't I don't really like people who disagree with me I certainly don't really want to invite them over for dinner very often but um (laughs) but but that's the thing is democracy is not government by me it's government by us and that's the uncomfortable reality is if you want change you have to secure that change in the end by persuading the citizens to change their mind. I wish the United Kingdom was still part of the European Union, but I think one of the reasons it's not, and one of the reasons that uh, that actually the European Union struggles more broadly, is that it hasn't done anywhere near enough work on consent. Why should people like it? And because a technocratic exercise involving a lot of spreadsheets says that on balance they're slightly better off than if they would be out of it doesn't work for public consent. I use this story in the paper that I wrote about um, a holiday I once had in Bulgaria at literally the worst hotel in the world, where it was, a, it was a sort of all-you-can-eat buffet. And you can tell how bad it was because there was this kind of group of like lads on a stag do. And even they went out of the hotel to buy food rather than eat at the all-you-can-eat buffet. And my husband went up to get me a pudding and he came back with a mouldy orange. unsurprisingly, I was quite cross with him because I did not believe that this was the best thing they had, even though he told me. And I went up to the counter myself to find the truth and discovered that, of course, he wasn't lying to me and it genuinely, a mouldy orange, was the best dessert option. (laughs) And I I, I use this as an example of what I think is kind of wrong about the the technocratic policy model, is clever people uh, like me, like you perhaps, sit in rooms and look at all of the alternatives and think about what's best and then sort of without showing our working just tell people in i don't know my hometown of bilf wells in in rural wales this is what's best for you and even if it's counterintuitive and even if it doesn't feel fair because you can see richer people elsewhere having a better deal just doesn't it doesn't feel fair or right or true and so even if you're spending all of the EU structural funds in Wales to make lives better, people say uh, and, you know, people in, in my in my kind of hometown do say this. It makes me want to bash my head against the wall. But it, nevertheless, it's their, it's their view is. But you didn't ask us what to spend it on. And that's the thing is the reality is if you want people to accept slightly rubbish options, whether they are decent oranges or moldy ones, you have to involve them in the decision making process. And if you're going to do that, you then also need to accept that they might choose things that your spreadsheet says are suboptimal.
1: Involving citizens in policymaking is something that I hear a lot and I see a lot, and it's you know it's it's on almost all the recommendations in all the executive summaries of policy papers get the citizens more involved. You have some specific ideas for doing that, which I think some of which are quite original and people may not have thought of. Tell us about the service obligations one in particular, because that is really um, something quite new, I think.
0: So I'm interested in two sides of this. One is the decision making part of it. Everyone's in favour of citizens assemblies for things these days. And I think citizens assemblies can be really valuable at identifying and navigating around the kind of vested interests that so often dominate within representative systems. There's lots of ways actually to get citizens involved. And we run a whole bunch of different participation technology that we build at Demos to allow people to vote on decisions, to to build what we call a collective intelligence network, uh, as a better way of doing consultations, I mean, literally anything is better than the way government does consultations, where they like <laughs> produce uh, the world's most boring consultation documents. So that I think is a is a big half of this of recognizing that there is, you know, politicians often I think quite benignly want to take decisions for people because they think people are too busy with their own lives to want to get involved or pay any attention. And and you and I may, lots of people may want to outsource our decision making. But when you do that, it causes harm because once I've outsourced the decision making, all I do then as a citizen half the time is just complain about the outcomes or go around wanting whatever, lower taxes and higher spending or whatever it might be, or um, lower energy bills, but also net zero. And if you don't involve people in the trade-offs, actually, it's it's not a democracy at all. It's just government for people, but it's not government by people. And then the second half is around getting people involved in, in public services more broadly. So my lodestar on this, despite the fact that I'm not and never will be a Tory, is Robert Peel, who invented the modern police force. And he had this phrase, uh, which is the police are the people and the people are the police. What he was trying to get at was this idea that, I mean, I don't know, maybe you have committed a crime today, but have you committed a crime today?
1: Have I committed a crime today? Um, are you asking me that question seriously?
0: Seriously, have you committed a crime today? Did, did you steal your breakfast? No,
1: no, no I didn't. Wait. I haven't, I mean, I've, I've, I haven't been out much except for the school run into
0: Sainsbury's. So, you <laughs> so
1: to
0: case, I have- You could have, you, you, you paid for your shopping at the till, right?
1: I did though. Yesterday I, I went to the dentist and I was so distracted by my son kicking off that I, watched, I walked out without paying and they had to call me back. So I almost committed a crime there.
0: But you did go back.
1: I did go back when the woman came out and said, excuse me, you need to pay.
0: <laughs> um, so, but that's really fascinating, right? So there's, there's a whole network of of social obligations that led you to pay it. You made a mistake. You didn't pay, but she comes out. Did did she forcibly restrain you? Did she make threats? No, you wanted to pay.
1: No, I was I was so mortified. I was like, oh, my God, how <laughs> could I have done this? Of course I have to pay to go to the dentist. You idiot, Roz. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I think it's just worth us thinking about like why we don't commit crimes is it's partly because of the law and enforcement. And it's also because of a set of social obligations around how we interact with one another and our respect for the law. You don't only stop yourself stealing if there's a CCTV camera. You also do it because you kind of think that it's wrong. Right. The way the police operate is actually contingent on most people wanting to follow the law most of the time. And it's really important to recognize that actually it's the, these micro interactions between people in a society are actually more important in securing the outcomes than the particular arm of the state. The the state, the enforcement part of it is an essential component of a functioning system, but it's not the only thing. The question of who you can turn to before you turn to the state is a genuinely important part of how a society operates and the poorer you are the less likely you are to have the social capital and the networks that can help you when things go wrong and so my view is that if you want to build up the demos the idea of a people not just people as individuals but a people is that you have to get people to be building up those networks between them, that social capital, all of the informal, the amateur stuff that actually comes before the kind of backstop of the state. And my view is that you, we should do that by, I am sort of slightly boldly think we should just mandate it, have way more obligations on people to participate as citizens, whether it is as um, volunteers in public services, whereas serving um, on citizens' juries on uh, local democratic decision-making panels, a whole range of different things. I think we try and imagine that we exist as sort of consumers in an economy and we can get away with putting about, you know, five minutes every four years into being a democratic citizen. And we've got it completely, completely wrong. Being a citizen is a big, hard and complicated job. And it's only by participating as a citizen in policymaking processes, public service, volunteering, compassion, kindness, empathy, all of those things, that you can build up the democratic skill set that enables people to compromise with the others who exist in a society. And it's actually only compromise which holds a democracy together. Because just to go right back to the, the circle, is democracy is about us choosing together not about an individual getting what they want.
1: And your opposition to faith schools, which is quite strong in these papers, comes from the same place, doesn't it?
0: Well, yeah, and I'm just, I'm very aware because somebody who loves faith schools may pick me up on this. This is totally me being like, I don't care. I'm right, you're wrong. (laughs) Um, Nevertheless, (laughs) I am right, they are wrong. Um, Here's the thing. Schooling is one of the most important points of connection between individuals and families, uh, and other individuals and families in a society, and if that is segregated in any way, whether it is according to caste or creed or religion or income level, is profoundly, profoundly harmful to that concept of a of a demos of of the connections between people. It's heartbreaking, really, to think of children and families being put into boxes according to their faith and spending so much time away from citizens who are different from them. I think we have underestimated how hard it is to build a demos out of a diverse citizenry. If most people live within 20 miles of where they were born for most of their lives and they go to the same schools and the same churches a huge amount of default connections and knowledge and understanding builds up. And if instead what you have is people moving around a lot, going to different schools, not having the faith-based encounters, not even watching the same TV channels, not caring about the same bits of news content, you know, how can you expect people with such divergent interests to cooperate with one another in a democracy? to be willing to compromise. You know, we we have five generations alive in this country. I mean, lots of others as well, but basically for the first time in history. And the interests of 90-year-olds and the interests of nine-year-olds are genuinely different. The interests of people for whom faith is a central motivating feature of their lives and uh, grotty old atheists like me are different in lots of ways. If you want to have it, and I do, because I think diversity is simply glorious, if you want to have a society, the shared identity that is the foundation stone of any kind of solidaristic public service, you have to actually build that shared identity, you know, and you can't just settle for different groups of strangers who get along in their own separate bubbles. It's actually just not OK. And I think that faith schools totally reinforce that bubbling of groups who sometimes have very deep social capital between them. But no bridging capital with other groups. I think we have to educate our children together, beyond, far beyond the boundaries of, of faith, but also, you know, income and social class. Those barriers have to be broken down to enable society to actually build up and build up that, that what's called bridging capital between groups of different kinds.
1: I did once work with a Northern Ireland correspondent at The Guardian who attributed a lot of the reasons for the troubles to the fact that in Northern Ireland, Catholics and Protestants are basically segregated by school, and that continues even now.
0: To me, it's enormously harmful. It's a missed opportunity. I think actually public services can be a point of connection, not just schools, but hospitals, the justice system, all sorts of different places where people can become connected to others. And we have to be. And you cannot assume that it happens by default in a society that is so atomized by diversity, by crucially technology, and the, the disaggregation of the, the kind of the both the media content and the economic experiences that we have. It used to happen relatively easily in homogeneous societies. Well, I, I don't want us to have homogenous society, and also we're not gonna. So let's think instead about what are the points of connection and interaction that people have? One really good example is National Citizen Service that's been kind of downgraded a bit to happen, you know, after schooling, very, very deliberately to bring together mixed groups of people, rich and poor, north and south, east and west, uh, black and white, massively, massively social engineered, the individual groups, very deliberately as a point of bringing people together, because it's just so easy to spend most of your life with people who are just like you. And if you do that, you are so much more likely to make compromises for people who you feel are like you. And so you have to build up that sense that everybody who's in Britain is like me, instead of just the kind of people I know.
1: You're also really keen on more parks, which I think will resonate with <laughs> a lot of people during the pandemic.
0: I make sound like
1: such a scattergun nutjob. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just trying to convey the breadth of your, your suggestion.
0: Yeah, hey, breadth, breadth, yeah, yeah, breadth. Of, yeah. But, but, but I
1: mean, I I you know, during during that period when when we were allowed to meet up with people uh, outside at a two meter distance for a walk and one other person, or that uh, also strange peop- uh, period when people would post on social media about. How they were in the park, but damn it, everybody else was as well. <laughs> so you want more of those green spaces.
0: Yeah, so it's actually an area that Demos did work on long before I was I was here. Like so when I was still at school. A couple of papers in the sort of mid-90s, one called Park Life. Cool, huh? Um and
1: um, <laughs> it's very nineties, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I can't remember what the other one was. But re- at, at the time, the real Anxiety about, about public space was that it had become kind of dominated in many cases by antisocial behaviour. And the policy agenda that Demos pursued, which was then taken up by, by the Labour Party, was around filling these public spaces with activity, especially family friendly activities. This massive movement towards festivals and celebrations in, in parks of using them, again, as places of, of connection the main thing people talk about when it comes to parks are simply the kind of the individual well-being benefits of being in green space. And I, you know, I completely agree with that. And again, you get the sort of the social divide thing of basically the poorer you are, the less likely you are to live within five or 10 minutes of, of a high quality green space. So that, that matters enormously. One of the worst things that makes me most angry is these grotesque kind of segregated housing developments where they've tried to like have the poor kid's playground separate from the rich kid's playground. That's the antithesis of, well, frankly, what childhood should be, what society should be, but also what a park can be. A park can be for the tiniest baby having their their first walk as its parent tries to get it desperately to go to sleep through to the oldest person on, you know, their last walks in the sunshine. I'm not trying to pretend that they're perfect but there's that sense of shared and collective experience associated with parks and also I think also a kind of identity and a pride that can come from it it's obviously a a much sort of a big example but you cannot imagine Manhattan without Central Park right Manhattan wouldn't be Manhattan without Central Park even though I'm sure there'd be like just think of the skyscrapers they could build on it uh in terms of the the billions of dollars that you could create but you wouldn't do it because it's it's at the heart of New York and I think it's obviously true of of London has amazing green spaces but actually so do I, I've mentioned my kind of hometown of Bill Wells it has a I don't know why it's called the grow it's probably some weird word in Welsh but um this sort of big bit of grass by the uh by the river called the grow And, you know, this is like super rural Wales. There is, it's not about green space because there is green space anywhere you care to look. It's actually, it's about commonality. It's, you know, teenagers drinking white lightning under a tree and, you know, and, you know, but the pub team's playing rugby on a Saturday and it's part of the identity of a town. It's why you then get these kind of really visceral campaigns against house building whenever it's taking over a bit of green space, because it's, because it's shared. I, I guess that's what I think is missed sometimes too much by, by liberals who are quite understandably care about individuals, because individuals are very often oppressed by, by the collective. But that sense of, of that a society needs shared things, and, and parks are one of the best and most egalitarian shared things that, that we have, and we should have more of them.
1: I think that's a great point to end on. Thanks so much for joining us, Polly. Thanks for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you like, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Jelna Sofraniewicz, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.